Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend, Chavruta and Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Yivamot, daf Chaf Dalad, page 24. So we have two Mishnahs today. Anne and I are going to each take one. I got the short Mishnah, <laughs> but uh, there's some very <laughs> a lot Gemara. Gemara. I but a lot of good Gemara. Mitzvah bagadol yabim, b'im kadam katan zaha. It's a very interesting mitzvah, which says it's a it, the Mishnah, excuse me, is that it's a mitzvah for the eldest to do the yibum, right? In other words, the eldest of the brothers does yibum, but if the younger brother sort of does the yibum first, you know, zacha, he he. Now the language actually translates into he acquires. Um, uh, do uh, but you know, uh, but that is uh, it, it's considered to be fair yibum. So. Um, uh, the Gemara then gets into a very interesting discussion, finally, about what exactly is the purpose of Yibum itself. Um, and so it says the following, right? So the following Brisa was taught, right? And it says, and it shall be the firstborn, okay? And what it's talking about there is, this is a Pasuk from Devarim chapter 25, verse 6, which is essentially saying that the firstborn that the woman and the brother have together is in the name of the dead brother, and his name won't be blotted out from Israel, basically. So from here, we learn that it's on the eldest brother, right? Because from the word Bechor. So even though it's that the Bechor, their firstborn, okay? But it's also saying it should be with the brother who's the Bechor, the eldest, right? Uh, should do the, the Yibam. Asher Teled, right? That will be bored. Right, so this would excuse a woman who cannot have bare children. She ain't your ledet, right? Because she doesn't have children. Yakum al shem achiv, and so it said shall be established in the name of his dead brother. And then this brisa says that is for inheritance. Now the brisa continues and says, You say it's that you know that this pasuk of saying yakum al shem achiv, right, shall be established in the name of his dead brother. Okay, you say that it's about inheritance. Oh, I know, Ella shame, but maybe it actually literally means shame. And this passage was fascinating, and it shows sort of like the age-old conundrum about naming for children, which, as we know, is very, very sensitive. In fact, I actually had a very lengthy discussion uh, today with a friend uh, about this, about how people name and what names they choose, and using the name of the person who actually passed away versus using a name that sort of symbolically means something to you about that person. And the Gemara says it straight out. Yosef, Karino to Yosef. If his name is Yosef, you if the brother, if the brother who died, if the right died, then you would call the child from the Yibum marriage Yosef. Yochanan, Karino to Yochanan. If his name was Yochanan, you know, call him Yochanan. I also find it fascinating the names that they use as well, right? Right? So it says, the bright answers, it says, it says here, he shall, you know, he shall sort of stand in place of or, you know, succeed in the name of his brother. The Neymar Lahalan, and later on, and, uh, well, later it says, all right, and here they're quoting a pasuk from Barishi, chapter 48, verse 6. They shall be called after the name of their brothers in their inheritance. Ma shem ha'amor lahalan nachala. So what he's saying is, is that just like in one case, this case in uh, Bereshit, 
it refers to when it says shame achehem to nachala. So then it must mean that in the case of yibum, it's also nachala. Um, and it's just interesting that sort of, you know, it even entertained this notion that maybe the idea of yibum is just to have a child named after this father who never, or this brother, I should say, who never had children in a way it's commemorating that brother by having a child name and, you know, named. And so I think it shows us that this idea of naming after somebody who is dead obviously is a very age old notion. And then it goes on to say, right? And his name will not be blotted out. That's a continuation of the Pasuk from Devarim. So this would exclude a deceased who was a eunuch, right? Let's say the, the person who died uh, was actually uh, was a eunuch, right? His name was already blotted out because he wouldn't have been able to have children anyways. Um, so, um, uh, it, okay, so, you know, very interesting. So now Rava brings up a very interesting point about this whole discussion about <laughs> is the shame, the literal shame, or is it nachala? Right, even though in the entire Torah, right, basically we, we always are supposed to really look at or use sort of the literal interpretation of a pasuk. Here, right, we use a gezer shava, right? We looked at how the word shame appeared in one pasuk. And then compared it to how the word shame appears in our particular pasuk about Yibam, right? And so therefore it removes it from its literal meaning altogether. So Rav is really pointing out, like, if you really read the pasuk, it actually should be the name. It's not Nachala. And here you're using a Gezer Shava to basically get to uh, the Nachala piece. The Elab Gezer Shava, And we're now for this Gezer Shava. Hava Amina Shame. Shame Amash. Right? When I see the word shame, I just would have thought it literally meant the shame. Right? Who is like the, you know, literally, who is Hashem instructing in this verse? Right? Who who does, uh, who who are we talking to here? Li Yavam, right? If he's speaking to the Yavam, then it should have said, Yakum al Shem Achicha. It should have said, shall succeed, shall succeed or shall be in place of the name of your dead brother, right? The Yavam's dead brother. Mibailai, that's what it should have said. Ilabedina, right? If it's talking to the court, right? That in other words, in terms of the court, the Bezdin will consider it that it's, you know, in place. It should have said, Yakum al Shem Achi Abi, right? Then it should have said, shall succeed in the name of his father's brother. So the Gemara basically rejects this and says, this is maybe what it was saying to the court, right? Or what the Torah is saying, Hashem is saying to the court. right? Say to the Yavam that basically this child who was born to the brother, Yakum al Shem Achiv, shall be established in the name of his brother. Rather, this Gezer Sheva comes to remove actual, the, 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 the literal meaning, okay? Um, and so, uh, you know, so that's what so, so that's what it wants to say there. Now they don't really sort of discuss that anymore, right? But Rav is really pointing out just what's peculiar about this whole thing. Like we have a literal meaning of the text. We don't really need a gezer shava to understand what the text means. And here we end up taking a pasuk from Bereshit, which is a story about Yaakov and the sons, 
right? In order uh, to understand Yibam. And I think that's really what Rav is pointing out. It's like, we're really not paying attention, guys, to the actual literal meaning of the Pasuk itself. And why is that? I don't know that the Gemara convincingly explains it, but for whatever reason, it makes more sense to them. Because remember, a lot of what's going on here, this whole process of Yibam, was actually about sort of keeping like inheritance within a family itself. Um, and, you know, that's a little bit, you know, so it was a way of keeping that brother's name within the inherent, the dead brother's name sort of within the inheritance of the family. Like it, it kept that name uh, alive. So I, I just think this is a great passage that's cert, you know, just acknowledges the custom of naming after the dead, right? And whether or not there's value to the actual name itself. And then Rava, who really points out like what is homolytically a little bit difficult here, right? We're not, we're, we're sort of just ignoring the shot. I, 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 and I don't know if you would agree with me. I don't think the Gemara comes to a great conclusion about it. It's more like it's pointed out and then it sort of goes through why the Pasuk was written that way and who was that piece of the Pasuk uh, meant for. But I don't think they give a good reason for why we can just go ahead and ignore the shot. I agree with that, I think. Um, I want to make two like small comments, I guess, on this business of the naming. First is, you know, the tradition of naming after the dead is something that has kind of been the in the hands of Ashkenazim for a long, long time. But Sephardim, or at least some Sephardim, do name after the living. So that when I worked in a Sephardi school, you know, one of the teachers or the, she wasn't a teacher, one of the staff there was all excited that she now had a new granddaughter who had her exact same name. And it was, it's a very strange phenomenon for me, Ashkenazi, right? But it's a very common thing, I think, at least in that society. So I find it interesting because it's kind of, a real counter to this text, which is clearly about naming after the dead. But I also want to note that I kind of never, ever, but never thought that naming after the dead brother, right, carrying on his name, I never, but never related to that as his first name. I always related to that as, you know, the child is going to be Ben, the son of the dead, the like the dead uncle, right, really biologically an uncle, right? So, but with the father's name, meaning that the like, so let's say you name the child like, I don't know, new baby. It doesn't matter, right? Something that isn't the name of the first name of the of the of the first husband, right? The the guy who has died, but rather he's going to be called Ben that guy instead of Ben the biological father. And I'm fascinated. I'm a little embarrassed, I guess, that I never kind of processed it this way, except for that I think that my understanding of it like makes more sense to me, which is maybe not fair to say about the Gemara, but because that's the carrying on of the father's name, as opposed to, I mean, I guess, right, you you give the child the first name, then that's carrying on his name also. But like, I don't know, there's something morbid to me about that. Like he, as opposed to just naming after the dead as an honor, here's somebody who died under presumably sad circumstances, relatively young, no child and so on. You know, I, I don't, I don't particularly like it. Although I'm not sure that I, feel that I have the right to opine in that way. Uh, yeah, but I, I, I think these are all, you know, this is, I think, for the first time brought up like the human piece of it, like the emotional piece, like what is Yibam actually uh, hoping to accomplish? And it took us till Dav Chafdalad to get to it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so th this was the first time we were like, oh, I get what Yibam is trying to do here and how painful and emotional and complicated the whole situation must have been.
Right. That's certainly true. Okay. I have the honor of the second mission on the staff. And the second mission on the staff, I think, is relatively different from the rest of Masachet Yevamot that we've seen so far in that it is not really particularly these complicated Yibum relationships, and it is very much about other prohibited relationships and, and what happens in them. And I would say that it's a very, let's say, modernish, right? Meaning it's addressing issues that are of very contemporary significance, of a lot of significance. So without further ado, right? somebody, a man who is suspected of having... Um, having slept with a shifcha uh, kanani, meaning I again one of these non-Jewish maidservants, v'nishtachara, and then she is later set free. Oh, al hagoya v'nidgayara, or with a non-Jew, and then she converts. You can all hear where this is going. Right. So then, under those circumstances, the man who, in modern parlance, we would say had an affair with either the maidservant or the non-Jew, cannot is not allowed, at least at least under ideal conditions, is not allowed to marry the now freed maidservant or the now Jewish convert who, who with whom he'd already had this relationship when she was a non-Jew. And I say that this is a very contemporary issue because I think that this is, you know, how often do we hear the question, you know, somebody's converting for marriage, right? Is that acceptable or is it not acceptable? Is it good? Is it a good conversion? And there's a lot of different opinions and, and so on. And I'm not going to delve into it today, but I'm just saying like, this is, this is the crux of that. Exactly that. But if they did get married, meaning if the man who had the relationship with either the maidservant or the non-Jew who either was then freed or then converted to Judaism, and they got married after all of that, even though they're not supposed to get married, they don't cancel, the, like the court will not require them to separate, right? Meaning maybe they shouldn't have got married, but now they're married, they can carry on with their lives and, you know, fine. I feel like, you know, fine, go to Hollywood. Like there's plenty of, and I'm not picking on Hollywood, there's plenty of public celebrity kind of figures where this is, you know, where the affair ends up being marriage, so to speak. And and it's not even so great. It's not a crazy occurrence, put it that way. Um, it's part of the human condition, I suppose. But, and here's a big but, but somebody who's suspected of sleeping with a married woman, meaning an actual, where she is actually committing adultery. And then she is removed from her husband, meaning they are going to get divorced. And they're going to get divorced because she's had this affair. Even then, if she marries the guy with whom she has the affair, Yotzi, then the court says, you know, he has to divorce her, meaning the person with whom she has the affair has to divorce her. The, the woman who has committed adultery cannot then marry the person with whom she has committed adultery, according to this Mishnah. Right? So, uh, you know, this is perhaps less practical. Plenty of people who have affairs do get married, do stay married. Um, but um, but the mission says no, right? Meaning the idea here is she was never permitted to him, right? And I suppose all three of these women were never truly permitted to the man. But the difference in violation between a man who sleeps with a shifre kanani versus, or a non-Jew versus the man who sleeps with a married woman it's a really different level of violation. Okay. I mean, in terms of punishmentals. 
Now, the Gemara here also gets very interesting. Interesting. So what happens? We're talking about, again, we're talking about this case of somebody, a man who has relations, marital, whatever, sexual relations with a non-Jewish woman who later converted. And again, the claim that he should not marry her. So ha, ha, this means that she does actually convert, right? Meaning, so once she converts, then the point is that even though it looks like she converted in order to be married, so she's not supposed he's not supposed to marry her, but still nonetheless she's then Jewish, right? So yeah, the Gemara makes the point that like this goes in both directions, meaning a man who converted for the sake of marrying a woman, or a woman who converted for the sake of marrying a man. Right, and then this is really interesting. I think, and somebody who converted for the sake of the king's table, meaning that they get to now be important, right? That oh, they're going to be at shulchan lachim. That they're going to have prestige. For example, let's say Shlomo Hamelch, the, the table of King Solomon or his servants, or so on. Right? It says here l'shum avdei Shlomo einan gerim. So the the brayta here says. All of these people, the person who converts for the sake of the woman, uh, of the man who converts for the sake of marrying a woman, the woman who converts for the sake of marrying a man, or somebody who converts for the prestige, the inherent prestige in becoming a Jew, I'm saying this tongue in cheek, Anan Gerim, they are not considered converts. Divri Rebbe Nechemia, according to Rebbe Nechemia, which is really, it contravenes the Mishnah, because the Mishnah makes it clear that this person converts, and the conversion is good, they just can't marry that person. As opposed to this, which is like, but if they really did convert for the sake of the union, meaning the union with the other person, then that is not even considered a conversion. So what happens? Rabbi Nechemia had, you know, a lot of opinions, shall we say, about converts in particular. And he says, we're talking about, when we talk about gere arayot, this expression, I feel like we've seen it before. Gere arayot are, con- the expression means converts by lions, meaning somebody who is forced to be a convert. And the example is always the Kutim, the Shomorim, the Samaritans. And they that population appears in the book of Malachim Bet, chapter 17, right? So meaning, Somebody who is converted by force or by under duress, I suppose, is the expression. And then also, gere chalamot, the converts who convert on their dreams, the basis of their dreams. And the people who converted in the time of Mordechai and Esther, because there's this verse, right, in the in the Megillah that says that the people that they became Jews because the fear of the Jews was upon them. We just read this. Um, the, in the Megillah, the idea that um, it became popular, really, to convert and under that regime at that time. Kind of, a, really, another element of Vinahafohu, the overturning, the upheaval that was going on in the time of the Purim story. So the Gemara here says, So all of these converts, meaning the Kutim and the people who converted based on their dreams, which is uh, certainly a whimsical um, phrasing that requires much more um, investigation that we're not going to do right now, and then also the converts in the time of Mordechai and Esther. According to Rabbi Nechemia, they're not considered converts, they're not considered t- true Jews until they convert again in the present era. Meaning, just because you're, just because somebody in your family converted uh, as part of the trend when it was the time of Mordechai and Esther does not make you Jewish. Go do it again. Bizman hazeza So the Gemara says, really? Does it, do you really think that means at the present time? 
like meaning it's generations upon generations later, right? El Ema Kit Bismanhaza. So rather understand it to mean like the present time, meaning that like the present time, meaning when the Jewish people are in exile, we're converting, we're saying this tongue in cheek, converting for the benefit, material benefit of becoming a Jew is a legitimate thing to say tongue in cheek. And then you could say, well, that's a legitimate, honest conversion because there's no ulterior motive because there's nothing to be gained, not nothing to be gained on a, on a prestige level, on a material level, that kind of thing. Okay. So then the Gemara goes back. Let's go back. Let's talk about the fact we're talking again about the case of the woman who converts for the sake of marrying the man that she's already presumably had an affair with. At least they're suspected of doing so. So the Psak, according to Rav Yitzchak Bar Shmuel Bar Marta, says in the name of Rav, the Halacha is like the one who says that they are in fact all converts, meaning the conversion is good. Just because they can't marry that person does not mean that they did not actually become Jewish. So the governor says, well, if that's the case, then why not treat that as, as an ideal factor? If you consider her conversion to be legitimate, then why can't she marry that guy? Meaning if she's a true convert, then there should be no impediment to her marrying this person, because she wasn't converting for him, right? She's converting, you know, let's assume to be Jewish. Mishum derev asi, the Amar of asi, haser mimcha ikshut pe v'luzut shvatayim. So Rav Asi takes a verse from the book of Proverbs that says, put away from yourself a twisted mouth and perverse lips, meaning that you should keep um, somebody who's who's being manipulative, right? Somebody who's who's coming forward and saying that they're converting for the sake of true Torah Judaism, but really what they want is to marry that guy, right? The, so Ravasi says, we're going to be machmer here. We're going to take a stringency and say, we're going to make sure that we we keep this kind of twisting of the facts or potential twisting of the facts away from us. The idea is that if this couple were to marry, then it immediately calls into question her conversion, even if it was truly legit. So then the goal is to make sure that that's not called into question, that her conversion is conversion, and she's not marrying that guy. And then lastly here, not lastly on the daf, but lastly for our my conversation here, Tana Rabbanan, the sages said, The converts are not accepted in the time of the Messiah. This is a pretty strong statement. So they said also, you know, they didn't accept any converts in the time of King David or in the time of King Shlomo. Meaning, again, the idea here being that converting to Judaism was potentially so beneficial that the conversion would not have been like l'shem shamayim, like in a in a pure of a of a pure dedication to the reasons to convert, right? Rather to get some kind of benefit, right? Amar Elazar, Mikra, Hain, Goria, Gor, Efes, Meoti, Mi, Gar, Itach. What are we going to do about this verse? But says, what about we, where do we get this halacha? Rather, we're going to get it from this verse that says they may gather together, goya gor, but without me, meaning without God, and whoever gathers together, that will fall on yours. This is a verse from Isaiah Yeshayahu, chapter fifty-four, meaning the moment you say gor, right? Then it sounds like ger, ger is convert, and it sounds like the ger who becomes part of the Jewish people. But because the Bnei Israel are li- the people, the Jewish people are living in exile, meaning God 
It says without me, because it's a time of Hester Panim, whatever God is not revealed. Nobody's converting because they suddenly had revelation from God. So the idea of becoming, joining the Jewish people at a time when God is not obviously revealed becomes like a much, I don't know, it's a more difficult, but I think also a pure kind of sense of, of conversion as compared to the time of David and Shlomo. And then Aval lo. And the Gemara says, but another person, you know, another one who w- wishes, who wants to convert in the time when God is so obviously revealed, that person is not accepted. Now, of course, the challenge here is to say, like, I understand, like, if God is revealed, still isn't the goal, shouldn't God's goals, isn't there a motivation to say, if you can recognize God in the world, then you should convert to Judaism, right? Like, if you can become part of the Jewish people, and it makes sense. But the concern here is that there's an ulterior motive and that it's not a purity to join the Jewish people. It's because like, oh my goodness, God is in the world. I have no choice, right? And this part of this discussion really does is where we get this whole question of, you know, freedom of choice and how much does a person have a say in, in what they do and, and so on. I will say that the rest of this daf is intricate and goes makes, you know, goes back into the discussions of like, What's really happening here with this married woman that she suspected of having relation, you know, sexual relations with um, this the the man she's having adultery with, and what's going to happen after that if they get divorced, if they don't, and it's not quite the classic Yibum issues that we've been discussing, but it feels like it again, as opposed to these more metaphysical conversion topics. Yeah, this stuff today felt very practical <laughs> in a much different way. It was not theoretical. And I think it really not theoretical with, and I contemporary, I felt. Contemporary and really came up, I think, with like emotional halachic issues, like naming children. What did the act of Yiba mean? You know, people who meet, you know, pe- people who meet and fall in love with people who are not of our faith and may need to convert and whether or not that's actually permissible, you know. So uh, yeah. there was a, there was a lot of good stuff on this stuff. I I, I like this stuff. This may have redeemed, uh, you know, what we struggled through the last couple of daps. <laughs> twenty four. Remember, dap twenty four. Twenty four. Well, that's our dap discussion for the day. Bring us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Barber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.